This podcast is brought to you by PennyMac TPO. PennyMac is committed to advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, the mortgage industry, and the community, including the promotion of affordable and sustainable home ownership. PennyMac TPO is a division of PennyMac Loan Services LLC, equal housing lender, NMLS ID number 35953. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. I've heard that, you know, this this neighborhood called, you know, South Boston or or, you know, whatever is is a really good place to live. And I have to kind of catch myself and say, uh, yes, yes, it is, you know, and it is. Um, But it wasn't always. This is Gated Communities, where we talk about everything you're not supposed to talk about in the mortgage industry. Boston is often referred to as one of the most segregated cities in the country. A number of incidents and hate crimes have occurred in the area, leading to a common perception that Boston is not minority friendly. For example, the 1970s busing crisis, the vandalizing of basketball legend Bill Russell's house, and numerous athletes complaining about racial slurs being thrown at them. Today we have Dave Wood, a black realtor, on the podcast to share his experience working in the greater Boston area. Wood has deep roots in Cambridge real estate. He was born and raised in Cambridge, where his mother worked as a broker in the early 1960s, and his father built a two-story house to create generational wealth for his family. Today we'll ask him, is the city as racist as everyone is led to believe? What is the reason for the disparity between minorities and whites in Boston? Is the underlying issue redlining or affordability? And what is it like for realtors, brokers, and loan officers to work in a city with a high amount of ethnic and class diversity? In terms of redlining and, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't particularly see it. Um, it it's, you know, I know it's there. I know it, it, it probably still exists, but it's not something that I encounter on a day-to-day basis. What's what I think is more uh, critical in this market and elsewhere, certainly, is not so much redlining and, and, and that, you know, past practice or whatever, but it's affordability. And one of the things that, that we see in uh, in greater Boston, eastern Massachusetts, Cambridge, Somerville, um, is a, I guess, a, a housing economy that is pretty stable in terms of creating value. Um, we, you know, the, the, the Cambridge area has never been one that has really suffered dramatically uh, as opposed to some other parts of the country uh, during economic downturns. I mean, in 2008, the bad old days, yes, the, the, you know, the market, it, it, you know, it slowed down. It, uh, uh, it wasn't, uh, it, you know, it wasn't the, 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 the market that we were, that we were used to, but it's a very resilient market because no matter what's going on, we always have people who want to come here for the academics, for the high tech, for the life sciences, uh, and things like that. And one thing I notice about about having such a such a, a a large amount of you know of lab space and and things like that is that the people who work in those labs they can't do it remotely and I've spoken to a number of scientists who say you know I have to be in the lab I have to be there I can't do it I can't do it via Zoom I can't run my experiments so they have to live near where they work mm-hmm. and. 
I think that puts this particular area in a relatively unique position because uh, it's not, uh, you know, yes, there's high tech and yes, there are people who can work remotely, but there's a large sector of people who have to be in their in their labs, in their in their space working. So that continues to create demand. It's not like, oh, OK, you know, yes, I could I could live there, but I could also work from the beach and do my, you know, do, get my work done that way. It's not so much. uh um you know, the, the, the method of operation here as it might be in some other places, because you have to have people who are, you know, who are on site as far as affordability goes and stop me anytime. If you have a question, um, as far as affordability goes, what, what we're seeing here, um, First of all, the city of Cambridge, the city of Somerville, uh, Boston, you know, a few of the communities uh, in the area are committed to providing um, affordable housing. And I say that because what they what they've done, uh, speak to Cambridge in particular, they've said they've told developers, okay, if you're going to come in here and build housing and redevelop housing, um, we're going to require that you have. Uh, a certain percentage that are affordable, a certain percentage of your units are going to be are going to be affordable. And that, you know, and those percentages vary. Uh, uh, I think they've they've just been increased uh, in Cambridge and in Somerville, um, I believe, in Boston, too. So there so there are those efforts to, you know, to create more affordable housing now is how successful is that? Well, you can only create so much affordable housing by segmenting a specific area in a building for affordability. If you build 20 units and, you know, five of them are are, are deemed affordable, well, you've got to build a lot of 20 unit buildings to come up with a lot of five you know, uh, uh, with a bunch of five affordable units. What we're beginning to see now is uh, developments that are 100% affordable. They'll build a, a building and say, okay, you know, we're building 100 units or we're building 50 units or whatever it is. They're all affordable. And I think that is the, you know, I believe that that's the quickest way to get the most affordable units, whether it's uh, whether they're condos or whether it's uh, uh, for rentals, that's the quickest way to get the most affordable units into the system, uh, onto the market. Um, there are, you know, that is somewhat controversial because then you have people say, well, you know, that's all well and good. But now you're now you're putting people in the same economic situation altogether. And is that not a form of some kind of of, you know, uh, you know, segregation or, 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 or warehousing. And that's debatable, in my opinion. I think it's more important. I think it's very important to get the numbers of affordable units on the market. And if you have to create 100 percent affordable housing units, complexes, then that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's up to, you know, up to developers to, you know, to make sure that that the, you know, that there are adequate amenities. In other words, that you're not building substandard housing just because it's 100 percent affordable. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that um, uh, 
happening here. I see that, you know, developers, you know, they understand that that affordability is important, but by the same token, they're business people and the numbers have to work for them. I mean, every time you talk to a developer, you know, they whatever whatever project they're looking at, they're saying, well, you know, yeah, this is fine, but the numbers have to work, you know? Mm-hmm. And what I think is 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 happening and has to happen more is that the policymakers have to say, okay, developers, if you're gonna, if we're gonna give you a building permit to do this, um, and you agree to do affordable housing, we're going to we're going to make it easier. We're going to cut the red tape. We're going to give you some incentives to make it w- more worth your while as a developer to provide this kind of housing. And and as far as as you know as segregation in uh, in the in the Boston area, I mean, I come from a pretty unique perspective because I've been here all my life, most of my life, and. Boston used to be a city that was comprised of very, very specific, um, I'll call them segregated neighborhoods. Um, If you lived in, you know, there were neighborhoods that were that were known for having high immigrant populations. There were neighborhoods that were known for having a specific type of ethnicity, Irish, Italian, uh, African-American. There were and there were spots all around the, the 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 geographical area where, OK, well, that's the Italian neighborhood. That's the Irish neighborhood, the North End versus South Boston versus Roxbury. You know, they were they were pretty much self-contained neighborhood. You didn't always need to travel outside of your neighborhood and have contact with other types of people because you could do, you went to school in your neighborhood until that changed. Uh, and that was a whole different dynamic in Boston. They had, you know, you, you may have heard of, you know, forced busing, school desegregation. The federal government came in in the early 70s and said, OK, we got to take the, these kind of people and put them in these schools. we got to take those kind of people and put them over there. And that's how we're going to have racial balance in the schools. Well, that didn't go over very well. It caused a lot of resentment, et cetera, et cetera. That's a whole separate issue. Okay. But the point I'm making is that uh, nowadays, uh, and I would say in the past, oh, I don't know, the past decade, decade and a half, maybe maybe longer, um, you're seeing those neighborhoods now becoming very, very, very diverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could, you know, you can walk through one of the neighborhoods that was known for having these kind of people in it um, in the past. And you'll hear all kinds of languages. You'll see all kinds of complexions. You'll you'll have um, you know a lot of a lot of younger people. This is a college town, as I'm sure you know. So you get a lot of people who come here to go to school, and they love it here for whatever reason, and they don't leave. So now you've got a a, a population of you know, 20 somethings or whatever we're calling them these days, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who are entering their their certainly their rental years. They're out of school, but now they're getting into their home buying years and they're purchasing where in the neighborhoods that work for them. Mm-hmm. And the stigma that 
that took place in those neighborhoods that those neighborhoods were known for many years ago is gone. I mean, the 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 demographics changed. The people who were in those neighborhoods left either by natural causes or they moved out or whatever. So yeah. Let me ask, uh, do you think that some of these instances like the the um, integrating with the busing and uh, things that have happened in the past kind of tainted and put this uh, redlining and racist label on Boston that maybe necessarily doesn't really fit there anymore? I do. I do. I, 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 I agree with that because, you know, you during those days and I'm talking, you know, basically through this throughout the 70s, early to mid 70s, late 70s. Those days you would travel to another part of the country and you'd say, oh, you know, yeah, I'm from Boston. You're from Boston. Oh, you know, look, well, geez, how can you? And then there would be this whole thing of, oh, how can you take it there? And you're black. And isn't it, you know, isn't it awful? Um, And yes, Boston was labeled as a very racist city. And and it was. I mean, there's a there's a uh, an unfortunately iconic um, photo of a black man being held, you know, sort of spread eagle like this, and uh, a white man charging him with an American flag. And it happened on City Hall Plaza in, oh, I don't know, in the early 70s. And that photo, it was before things went quote unquote viral, but uh, it went viral in, in today's parlance. It went everywhere. Everybody saw it. And that, I think, that image really galvanized the fact that, oh, you know, it's not safe to be, you know, to be a person of color in uh, in Boston. Look, look what they're doing. Um, was it an unfair label? I don't think so, because at the time, that's exactly what was going on. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yes, there is a legacy of that. But as I said earlier, something like that is not unique to Boston, Cambridge or anywhere else. That stuff was going on everywhere. Right. You know? Of course. Uh, but, um, um, I, I would have to say, you know, for other people that are working in areas that have a history of segregation, that have a history of redlining, I imagine that it, it's much more difficult um, than working, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of the country where everyone is kind of uniform and you see a lot of the same all the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I imagine it's a much different working environment than, say, working in Idaho or Ohio. It 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 has to be, you know. I mean, this is, you know, the the Northeast in general is is sort of known as being, you know, you know, more liberal, more tolerant, you know, more, you know, more more educated. We've got a concentration of 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 you know higher education here, as I said earlier. So yes, it is. I mean, and I feel very fortunate to be. Um, you know, to be doing what I do in this environment, because when those things happen uh, and when they have happened in the past and if they still do happen, Massachusetts has a very robust uh, anti-discrimination um, uh, authority, uh, the Massachusetts Committee Against Discrimination. And they, you know, they send out testers, they they field complaints from people and they do impose. They do enforce the fair housing laws and they do impose penalties. Uh, so, you know, does that happen in the middle of the country? Does that happen in Idaho and other places like that? I don't know. But I do know that that being in this environment, being in this market, 
um, with with, you know, the demographic that is here. Um, you really don't you really don't see it, uh, you know, that much. And you know that if you do, you've got you know, you can you can bring in the authorities and say, look, this this has to stop. When I interview people in the industry and we talk about uh, low low income borrowers, which is a, another segment of underserved borrowers, um, there becomes the issue of, well, maybe you're not financially prepared to own a home. So and it's your decision, you said, you know, to to help low income borrowers, to, you know, you help people in all communities, including low income. Sure. What What is your response to that? And how do you know someone is financially prepared um, for home buying? What I do is as an agent, somebody will come to me and say, OK, you know, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to buy a house. All right. Well, my first question is, are you pre-approved with a lender? Have you spoken to a lender who is going to give you some guidance as to whether you are financially prepared? Because they're going to look, as you know, lenders are going to look at your, you know, your credit history or, you know, all of the things that are that are going to prove that you either can or cannot um, come up with, uh, with, you know, with, with a down payment and, and continue to make payments. Uh, so what I, you know, on that note, what I've seen one lender in particular, and I'm sure there are others, do is offer, and this is just recent, I think it's Bank of America, actually, that's offering no down payment loans. Mm -hmm. And when I first saw that, I was like, ooh, that could be, because that got us into a little bit of hot water there back in 2008 when it was, you you know, I mean, you you know, you know that whole story. and I'm, you know, and it's now happening again. But from what I understand, the you know, the it, it, it's not a 2008 situation. It's like, oh, well, do you have a pulse? Do you have a job? Do you make money? Oh, yeah. OK, fine. Sign here. Uh, it's not that sort of deregulated, you know, shoot from the hip. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, here here's a loan, uh, you know, predatory lending or whatever. Now I understand it's 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 very, um, you know, the, 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 the lender is very um, careful as to who they offer those those loans uh, to. But uh, to, to your point of of, you know, what what you know, what can I do to make sure somebody is, you know, has the information they need uh, is basically put them in touch with a lender who, uh, who that that I know that I've worked with who understands that, OK, not everybody is, you know, a scientist working at Pfizer. Right. Uh, you know, we've got we've got people who, you know, who uh, who, 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 you know, who can't do that. So I, I have identified some lenders who are like, OK, this is somebody they're a first time buyer there. There are first time buyer programs where you can, you know, municipalities will put them on uh, and first time buyers can go and take the courses and then get some sort of a break in their in their down payment. But the the sticking point seems to be with, you know, as I said earlier, with sellers who are like, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to offer, you know, I'd love to be able to, to, to do this, but, you know, I need to make a certain amount of money too. The other piece is I had some buyers once who, um, you know, put a, put an offer in on a place 
And we later found out that I forget how many of the units were affordable. There was a very high percentage. Um, it was kind of an unusually high percentage. I don't know whether it was 60% or 80% of the units in this building were affordable. And when my buyers found out, they were like, you know, we really have a problem with that, not because we don't want to be around people who are, you know, who who need affordable housing, but we have to think of what is that going to mean when we go to sell in five or 10 years or eight years or whatever. Uh, what's the resale? How does how is that going to stigmatize, if at all, the resale value? Now, the question is, it already has because you're now these buyers are now telling me we don't want to go through with this deal because there are too many people in here that that need affordable housing. There are too many affordable units in here, and they were. It wasn't it wasn't a racist thing. Um, the, you know, they weren't, they were international. They weren't from this country. Um, and so they were like, really, we, we're not trying to be these, these racist people that you, that you read about, but you know, we're concerned. And I had to say, well, yes, that that's a legitimate concern. So I think that there has to be some education or some understanding among the you know, the buying public that, okay, you know, an affordable how an affordable unit in your building is not necessarily going to devalue the property. Right. Um, and, and it, it, and it shouldn't stigmatize the property so that only people who are not stigma, who, who, who don't care about that, are going to come in there. Well, now you get a situation. Okay. Well, now everybody's in the same boat, and you've got a building full of people who all make the, you know the same amount of money, which is probably which is to a degree happening anyway. But you know, you 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 don't want a situation where you know where affordability you know creates some kind of reason that gives people pause and say, mm, I don't I don't really know now. Um, in Cambridge, for instance, now I would across the street from these these labs and these these uh, um, life sciences companies and everything. Across the street from them, in the city, there is affordable housing. Okay, and so you've got the you know the Pfizer and Moderna labs and the big glass towers and everything, and you walk across the street and you've got you've got a housing development that was built in you know, like a post-World War II housing development. And the people in there, maybe they're working at Pfizer, but chances are they probably aren't. Um, and I've dealt with people who want to live, and I don't mean to single out Pfizer, but they're just, I just got my, I just got a, my second booster shot yesterday from Pfizer, so it's all in my mind. <laughs> um, but, uh, you you know, you, 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 what I'm seeing is that you know, I've had people say to me, oh, who, who purchase in a neighborhood where there might be some affordable housing. And I'll say, oh, well, what are those buildings over there? It's affordable housing. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> that's what it is. I'm not going to say I don't know. I'm not going to say I can't tell you. Yeah, it's affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And I really haven't had people say, oh, well, 
show me another neighborhood because this isn't going to work. Um, the only time I had it happen was when, uh, and again, it was for, for different reasons, was, was the situation that I told you. And it was not because they didn't want to be there. It was because of their concern for, uh, for resale. So what I'm saying is that I think that among, among a younger demographic, let's say, mm-hmm. they don't seem to be put off so much by proximity to, uh, to affordable housing, to, to public housing, as we, as, as you sometime hear. Is it hear because they're not thinking of the resale value or, or they just really don't mind it? I, I think it's that they just don't mind it because um, the reason that they're there, the reason that they came to that particular property is because it had some amenities that they liked, that they wanted. It was close to something. It was, they could walk to work or they could, it had a nice yard or it had this or it had that. And the living space, I think, is more taken into consideration than, you know, than than sort of what the building is next door Mm -hmm. uh, or across the street. And yeah, that may be a factor, but I think many, you know, many people are saying, well, look, it's got parking, it's got central air, it's got laundry in the unit, it's it's an, it's in good condition, you know, blah, 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 blah. This is where we want to be. This is what we like. It's a great place. And we don't, you know, we don't mind being in a, you know, in a situation where there might be somebody different from us, either economic, socioeconomically right. or, or racially, because what I've, what I've heard, a, you know, a fair number of people say is, well, you know, I want, I'm going to live, you know, we're going to live here for, you know, maybe they don't have kids yet or whatever, or they have young children or, or one child. And I've had a, a surprising number of people say, well, you know, we want to be in the city. We want diversity. We want our kids to be, you know, to have friends of all from all different all different backgrounds. Culture. Um, and I think there's a there's a there's a demographic that that appreciates that, that understands the the globalization of society more so than maybe somebody in my generation. Don't miss the largest regional mortgage show in the nation. The New England Mortgage Expo returns to Mohegan Sun in Connecticut, January 12th and 13th. See us at www.nemortgageexpo.com. Start your year with the best connections in the industry. Dozens of sessions, scores of exhibitors. It's where success is written every hour. www.nemortgageexpo.com. Well, let me ask you one more question. Let's um kind of expand our view to nationally um, because we've been talking a lot about Boston. Um, I'd like to get your opinion on the home ownership gap between the black community and the white community. And just Mm. your opinion on that Um, evidence shows that the gap is widening and we hear all sorts of opinions as to why that's happening and how to solve that. So I'm just wondering if I could get your take on that because you seem to have a, a very unique view. Well, I think it, you know, from what I can see, it's it's what I alluded to earlier. Um, first of all, you you know, the, the, the key thing to having a, a, you know, being able to purchase a house is the down payment, whatever it is, whether it's 3%, 10%, 20%, whatever. You've got to have a chunk of cash. You've got to have access to a chunk of cash 
to to get the process started. All right. And if you've never had home ownership in your family, um, if you've been in a situation where you, you know, you weren't given or didn't take advantage of or weren't exposed to um, various opportunities and you're in a place where you know, there really isn't a lot of initiative, whether it's from policymakers or or developers or whoever it is. If if you're in an area where nobody really is going to um, help facilitate your ability to purchase a home, um, you're not going to you, you, you're not necessarily going to pursue it if you're not familiar with um the concept and the advantages you know the 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 you know what home ownership offers you if your if your dinner table discussion is not about creating wealth and and you know passing down uh um uh, uh you know passing down financial stability then it's not something you're going to think about. I think that there's a that, that part of the of the gap in home ownership is a gap in education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, gee, I've, you know, owning a home, I you know, I don't want to be, t- you know, I, you got to deal with this bank for thirty years and oh, landlord oh, can call anymore. You have to take care of the issues yourself. Exactly, exactly. I'd rather you know, and and I've seen. You know, I've seen wealthy people do this. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily it isn't a reflection of of your income. Oh, I don't want to be responsible for that. If something comes up. Yeah, I just want to call somebody and just have them come do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- there are those people. I mean, I, I encountered somebody who was in a very, very, very nice penthouse apartment in uh, in one of Boston's very, very fashionable neighborhoods who was paying twelve thousand dollars a month in rent. And he was like. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm a renter. I'm not a, I'm not a home buyer. I'm not. And I was thinking, okay, you, you would, you would rather take this chunk of money and just throw it away, toss toss it out the window. Yeah. Line your, your landlord's pocket with that rather than go do it yourself. The the, the tax advantages and the, you know, things like that, the, the, the the pride of ownership. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that, that if you're not, if you're not taught the importance of of home ownership, as I was, as 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 my family was, because you know one of the things that 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 I came up on was if you own your own house, chances are, unless you screw up on the you know on the mortgage and fall behind or whatever, but nobody's going to throw you out. No. Nobody's going to tell you you can't stay there. Nobody's going to come to you and say, oh, you know, I need this apartment because my daughter is coming back from wherever and she's going to move in here. So, yeah, it's great. You've lived here for 25 years, but you got to go, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I was always uh, taught that if you own the place you live in, nobody can do that. Yes, you're responsible for making the payments. You're responsible for the maintenance and all that. but you know, and you have to take on that responsibility. And it is a, it is a responsibility that you should take on because there are distinct advantages to it. 
Now, if nobody's telling you that stuff, if you don't get that from wherever, um, you're not going to you're not going to think about that. You're you're, you're going to be like, well, all I've seen in my in my around me are people who, you know, call the landlord and who said, you know, let's just, you know, let's just rent and we don't want to be, you know, tied into this. So I think a lot of it is that African-Americans and in some cases, other people of color um, didn't have the, have not benefited from that sort of fundamental um, you know, that fundamental tenet of home ownership is extremely important. And I've, I've made it a point to tell people, no matter what their, you know, their race or whatever is, that you're, a, you're now a homeowner. You've never been a homeowner before. And one of the things that you as a, as a, as a, a first-time homeowner will realize is that people are going to treat you differently. If you are an owner, you get, I mean, society just has a way of looking at you differently. Okay. I own a timeshare out in, uh, out in Colorado. Okay. I own a timeshare. Okay. And you know, timeshares are their own thing, but it works for me and that's what I do. And we all, you know, they always make a point of, okay, well, since you're an owner, you get to do this, you get this privilege, you get this benefit, you get that. And it kind of makes you, you know, kind of, oh, gee, I'm, I'm an owner, you know, is, is, isn't right. that nice, you know? And so, so you're, you're viewed as a, as a, I think in general by society as a more responsible person, as a, as a more settled person. Okay. Well, you're buying a house, so you're going to be where you're going to be. You're going to be there for five years anyway, right. or something, you know, maybe 10, you know, whatever, but you're not, you know, you're not going to, you're not a, a transient. Uh, you're going to, you're going to put down roots and, um, you know, if you're going for, you know, a car loan or any any other kind of financing or anything, um, one of the questions they ask is, do you own your own home? Mm-hmm. You know? And um, and I think that 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 once you a lot of people don't understand that, OK, every time you make that mortgage payment, uh, eventually you are building up something called equity. Right. And if you do that long enough. You're going to turn around and as your home appreciates, uh, assuming that it does and hoping that it does, uh, as your equity grows, as as you, you know, as the value of that property uh, appreciates, guess what? You at some point, you're going to have some money that Mm -hmm. is going to be available to you. Whose responsibility is that to teach financial literacy? I know we all aren't privileged enough to have our parents teach it to us. They could have been, you know, generational renters and tenants. So is it the broker's responsibility? Do you feel it's in part your responsibility to teach your clients? Um, Who who should really take ownership over uh, financial education or should it just be left up to the person to figure it out for themselves? I really think that um, I, I mean. As you know, as as a realtor, as somebody who, you know, who was in the business, uh, yes, I do think it is incumbent upon the real estate community to, you know, to explain the people, explain to people 
renting versus owning and and the the importance of owning versus renting and the the you know educate people on the on the pros and cons of 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 each um so i you know i i think most most realtors will tell you that they you know they do that as a as a matter of course i personally believe that that is something that uh educators should do now how much more do we want to put on our teachers? Right? right. They're, you know, they're doing all of these, you know, they're having active shooter drills and they're having they're doing all this other kind of stuff. To me, it is extremely important. Now, I don't know whether it's at the great the elementary school level, the high school level. Uh, maybe it's a, 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 you know, a mandatory course in, in, in college. Uh, somebody, who is charged with education, an educator, I think should really take it upon themselves as a as as a sector in in uh, you know in in the world of education should say, okay, we're going to look at you know personal finance. We are going to look at building wealth. We're going to look at creating wealth. We're going to look at how real estate um, can do that for you. Now, brokerage firms like mine, you know, we, you know, we, we have seminars, we have, you know, educational uh, uh, opportunities for people. But I think a lot of times in the brokerage community, there's this thought that, oh, well, they're only telling this so they can sell us a house. And that's the only reason they're doing this. You know, I mean, they, you know, they're just trying to create business for themselves. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> there is something to that. This is this is not church work. I don't do this for free. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, if I can if I can bring somebody along who who says, OK, yes, you've convinced me now go find me a house. Well, you know, hooray for me. But it's not about me finding them a house. It's them. It's about them finding a place where they can create wealth uh, uh, for their family, uh, uh, you know, generationally. So I'll go back to my original point. I think that, you know, high schools, I mean, if you can, if you can teach, you know, and I'm dating myself here, but when I was in school, you know, they used to teach no matter whether you're in a college course or not, but they would teach woodworking. They would teach, uh, um, subjects that you know it wasn't just reading writing and arithmetic right. uh, there were there were other things that 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 you know that that educators were were teaching you how to do i think that you know investing in real estate uh home ownership i think and it doesn't have to be some high level stuff where you know you're looking at nothing but charts and graphs and and all that i think it has to be a very basic uh, um, curriculum, if you will, that explains why it's what the differences are and why it's better to own property. Um, and I think it's a it's a it's it's not a difficult concept if you have you know if if you have people who are uh, you know who are interested in in learning about it. Uh, I think nowadays, I, I think we're in a good, this is a good time to do that because one thing that I'm seeing uh, among, you know, younger people is a very entrepreneurial spirit. 
you know, you've got, you've got, and I'll call them kids. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got young people now who, you know, they're, they're starting their own business. They're, they're, uh, you know, every time I, you know, you turn on the TV, it's like, oh, well, here's so-and-so and they're 24 years old and they now have a, an import export business that they started up from their dorm room or something, you know, so, or their, their basement or whatever. My point is that I think you've got, you've got young people now who, you know, they're not looking for the, you know, the nine to five Monday through Friday. And if they are, they're not going to find it, but they're not conditioned for, you know, nine to five work there 30 years, get a, you know, get a golden handshake when you leave. And, you know, that's what I was brought up on, you know, go to college, you get a good education, get a good job, uh, you know, go find a good place to work and, and you'll go up the ladder, you'll be rewarded for it and go work for somebody else. Um, I think now that, that, that in the spirit of entrepreneurism, um, I think you can say to people, you know, if you do own a house, if you do own property, you might be, there are ways you can, borrow against it, still keep it, and then go buy something else. Right. And, you know, and increase your wealth that way. I suspect that a lot of people, if you said that to them and said, you know, you can just sort of keep on doing that. I would think that a lot of people uh, might be surprised at that or might might think it's more difficult uh, than it is. Because one of the things I think you see in 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 home ownership versus non home ownership are the horror stories. Everyone has a horror story. Mm-hmm. Everybody that's thinking about buying a house, their friends say, "Well, let me tell you what happened to me. I got this crazy realtor, or I had this crazy seller, and or or you know this was my experience, and we almost didn't close, and oh, it was awful, and I'd never I'll never do it again." So, and I think people sort of go, Ooh, okay, well, maybe I just should deal with this rental thing for a little bit longer until, you know, I think there's, I think there's intimidation. I've, I've closed with a lot of first time home buyers. One of the things I try and do is take the, 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 the stress out of it, the, the, the anguish out of it. Like, most people are so overwhelmed. It's like, well, you know, this, you got to get inspections and you have to get to sign all these documents and you have to talk to lenders and you have to, you know, purchase and sale agreements. And, you know, there's so much and it's so overwhelming. And I've had people just sort of come in and say, well, where do we start? And I think if you if you break it down and say, OK, yes, there are a thousand steps, but we're going to take one at a time. Mm-hmm. And that may sound kind of cheesy, but it's what you do. You say, all right, forget about all of that stuff for now. We are going to look at what is your goal? Where do you want to be? What kind of property do you want? Let's just talk about that. You know, let's just talk about the ideal place that you want. Just tell me about that. And then we will slowly but surely go down the path. And I've had people say, you know, I thought that this was just going to be a horrific process and the way you, you know, set it all up and the way you, you guided guided me through it, it it made it, it it made it very simple. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, oh, it's, you know, they say, oh, you know, it's so hard. It's so difficult. And I say, it's not difficult. 
so much as it is complex. It's not complicated. It's complex. There are yes, there are lots of moving parts. There's lots of stuff you have to do, lots of deadlines and people you have to deal with. But if you do it right, if you have the right guidance, it's gonna be it's gonna be okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that that there has to be more of a demystification of the process, an education of people to what the process is and the benefits that you're that you're going to get. Well, I don't want to have to buy a new roof. Okay. Well, if you there's there's ownership by yourself, there's single family ownership. There's also condominium ownership. If you're in a five unit condominium and it needs a new roof, well, guess what? All five of the owners are going to pitch in and buy that new roof. It's not going to be just you. So you're going to have some help with maintaining the property. I don't want to maintain it. I got to do all this stuff. Yes. That's why I suggest that first time home buyers, you might not want to get a single family right away. You might want to think about whether you're ready for a single family. You've never owned property. Now, all of a sudden you've got to do all these things. You've got to fix the plumbing. You've got to fix the electrical, you got to all this stuff. Start out with a condo and you're going to have other people in there with you. And, you know, they're going to maybe they're going to be crazy and you're going to be miserable. I don't know, because condo associations can be, you know, they can be stressful. But um, here's how it can work for you so that if that's your stress point. We can make it so that it's not going to be all on you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything that you've you've discussed today. And and for, for the advice, you know, I think a lot of um, loan officers as well and people in the mortgage industry should take responsibility um, for fin- for teaching financial literacy because Absolutely. they're also customer facing people. And, right. you know, I've been through um, the beginning stages of the process of getting pre-approved and, I, you know, working in this industry, I do have some knowledge, but it is always helpful to have a guiding hand because it can do, it, definitely be intimidating. It, it really is. And, you know, because, you know, each each deal is different and you, you kind of never know what you're going to run into. But um, but yes, I, I think I think lenders really also need to sort of say, look, you know, it's. It's not the it's not the boogeyman process that you that you think it is, that you've heard that it is. And I think customer facing lenders are very important because and I won't keep you. I'm, I know you're trying to wrap up because you get a lot of situations like, oh, well, I'll just go online. I'll go to, you know, loan.com and, you know, and go for the best rate. And I always suggest to people, yes, I know you're tempted to go for the best rate because you know, you want to pay as little as possible every month, but you also need to go for the best customer service. You want somebody who is going to walk you through the process because yeah. a low rate is no good if the lender screws everything up and you never get to the closing table. Right. And people who who actually care about their borrowers, you know, usually go out of their way to out of their way to think of programs and different options for you that can make it more affordable. So you want an an attentive person um, to, you know, to partner up with and help you get through this home buying process. Well, thank you so much for coming to the podcast and for talking about the Boston area. I think lots of people, like you said, will be able to connect with that because 
like that, very high concentrations of wealth and and poverty, all very closely knit together. Yeah. It definitely creates a very different working environment. So thank you so much for educating us on that and getting into all of this. It was sure. definitely very insightful. So thank, thank you. Thank you. So much. All righty. All righty. Take care. hosted by me, Katie Jensen, for the Mortgage News Network. All episodes are produced by T.G. Kudem Peror and Matthew Mullins. Our head of multimedia is Mike Savino, and our editor-in-chief is Christine Stewart. Make sure you subscribe to Gated Communities so you get future episodes, and be sure to rate and review it so others can find it. The song you heard at the beginning was Wildside by Saint Society, and the song you hear now is Will You Dance With Me by La La Nia. This podcast is copyrighted by American Business Media. This podcast was brought to you by PennyMac TPO. Visit tpo.pennymac.com to learn more about becoming a partner and starting your journey to greatness. PennyMac TPO is a division of PennyMac Loan Services, LLC. Equal housing lender, NMLS ID number 35953. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. 